Two weeks ago, on Sunday, I spoke to you on the 22nd Psalm. Last Sunday, I preached on the 23rd Psalm. And this morning, I would like to preach on Psalm number 24. You should be accustomed to it. You just got through responding to it in our responsive reading. But you cannot read it enough. It is a real highlight experience for the believer if he understands what's happening and what is being presented in Psalm number 24. So if you have your Bibles, why is that important? i tell you why it's important. All men are liars. All men are liars. You cannot believe half of what you hear today, regardless of how good it might sound. If it doesn't measure up to the Word of God, it's a lie. Did you hear what I said? If what we do and how we live does not measure up to the teaching of God's Word, we're lying in claiming to be Bible-believing Christians. Bible's not just another book. It's not romance. It's not the Reader's Digest. It's the Word of God that liveth and abideth forever. Psalm 24. Again, verses 1 through 10, notice the reading. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul under vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lift up, you everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up. You everlasting doors and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Though we wish to treat the entire psalm, I want us to focus in on verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? That's a question mark. And it is a question mark we are compelled to answer. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who's going to stand in his holy place? And the next verse gives us the answer. To that question, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. I want to speak to you on the subject of authority to enter heaven. 
authority to enter heaven. There are many places in this world that one can go without any permission. But there are some places, my dear friends, you cannot go irregardless of how desperately curious you wanted to be there. You just can't go. You won't be permitted. You won't be allowed. You say, well, you don't know who I am. Don't care who you are. I'm not going to let you in. Authority to enter into heaven. In Psalm number 22, we see the Lord on a cross. It speaks of his suffering, his anguish in dying for the sins of his people. And the detail of that is focused on verses 14 through 18 of chapter number 22, which reads, I am poured out like water. And this is what Christ said a thousand years later when he hung on the cross of Calvary. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust, pardon me, the dust of death. Speaking of Christ on the cross. Psalm number 23, however, we see the Lord at the Father's right hand after his resurrection and his ascension as our priest and as our shepherd. In verses 2 through 4 of chapter 22, we read these words. In the 23rd Psalm 2 and 3 and 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now when you get to Psalm number 24, we see our Lord as a ruling and a reigning king. In Psalm 22, He, Christ, is the sacrifice. In Psalm 23, Christ is the shepherd. In Psalm number 24, He is the sovereign one. He's referred to five times as the king of glory. Notice in verses of the 24th Psalm, verses 7 through 10, Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be ye lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of of glory. I think it's quite interesting if you are a student of the Bible 
to notice that Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 end with a sentence with a period. Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 end with a period. In Psalm 22, it says, speaking of Christ, that he hath done this, period. In Psalm number 23, it says that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, period. But when you get to Psalm 24, it doesn't end with a period. It ends with a little word, Selah. Selah. That is a musical term. And it means to pause and reflect on it. Don't speed read that. Slow down a little bit. Let it sink in. It's very, very important. You don't want to miss that. It's a sign and it's given to us. We are to rest there. And at these verses that we're reading, we're to rest for a little while and give some serious thought to it. Our Lord died and was buried. Selah, think of it. Contemplate it. Our Lord arose from the dead and took his seat in heaven. Selah, think of that. That's where he's been for the last 2,000 years. And our Lord is coming to rule and to reign one day on this earth. Selah, think of it. The Psalms were not given to be only read, but to be sung as well. God supplied the lyrics, but David supplied the music on his harp. A good example of that is the 63rd Psalm. Quickly, turn over to it. Psalm 63, verses 3 through 4. The lyrics are these. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. Thy loving kindness is better than life. Thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee, thus will I bless thee with thy name. I will lift up my, I will lift up my hands in thy name. I will lift up my hands in thy name. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My lips shall praise thee, thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. You say, well, you don't sing too well. Neither do you. (laughs) But at least I'm trying. We need to learn how to sing the psalms. Go through life singing these great, great psalms that we find. In Psalm number 22, the music was probably mournful and sad because it speaks of the death and the suffering of Christ. In Psalm number 23, the music was gentle and easy to listen to. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
In Psalm 24, the music was loud and majestic. Let me quickly give you a background of the setting of Psalm 24. It is thought the setting of this psalm dealt with the return of the ark to Jerusalem. Probably David said these words when he entered into the city of Jerusalem with the ark. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, be lifted up, you everlasting doors. Remember the ark was taken by the Philistines and wound up in a strange and foreign land. Later, David would go get the ark and bring it back to Jerusalem. He would enter the city rejoicing, dancing, shouting with the blast of the trumpets. He would command that the gates be opened so the ark of God could again be brought in. And it provides us with a type. The ark was the presence of God, as would be the Son of God. The Lord Jesus wound up in a strange land when he left heaven and came to this earth. But you see, Psalm 24 pictures Christ going back to heaven, the new Jerusalem, and commanding the gates to be opened, dealing with the ascension. You know, we, in studying the ascension of Christ, I've never read anything quite like it before that Christ defied the law of gravity and began to go up into heaven and the disciples were on Mount Olivet and they saw him as he was being taken away. Have you ever wondered what it must have looked like from the other side? What did they see? They watched the Lord as he was taken out of their sight. But there was somebody on the other side looking down, watching him get closer and closer and closer to home. Entrance into Jerusalem required that the gates be opened. The castles of ancient Europe and Asia were surrounded with huge walls. Quite often they were surrounded with a moat filled with water. And the main gate must be swung down to bridge over the water before entrance could be attained. One had to have authority to enter. Jerusalem was thus surrounded with a huge wall. You remember after the captivity, Nehemiah was given permission to go back to Jerusalem and what? Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. I've got quite a few things I want to say, and I don't want to keep you here too long after six o'clock tonight. But in the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation, that's the last book in the Bible, 21st chapter in the book of Revelation, it talks about in verse 21. Verse 10, 12, and 18. Listen to it. In verse 10, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Notice verse 12. It had a wall, great and high, and had twelve gates. And at the gates were twelve angels, 
the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Also notice more is said about it. As you continue that particular reference, it sets forth in verse number 18, the building of the wall, it was of jasper. The city was pure gold, like under clear grass, glass. And verse 21, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was one pearl. And the city, the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. You cannot read that by just gaping a little bit and saying, my, what a beautiful place. But it was all surrounded by a wall. And the only way to get inside, you had to have permission. You had to have permission. You had to have authority. Thus, our text, by what authority do we have a right to enter that city? Christ had every right to enter into it. But what right do we have to expect we have the authority to go walking into that city? We've often made jokes about Simon Peter, have we not? Who's up there guarding the gates of heaven? Huh? You've got to go through Simon Peter to get inside the gates of heaven. That's Catholicism. You're welcome. That's Catholicism. It refers to the Pope having authority over heaven's entrance. What a lie. What blasphemy. I want to share with you, as God permits me, three things about our text. Number one is the sovereignty of God. Verses 1 through 2. Number 2 is the holiness of God. Verses 3 through 5. And number 3 is the authority of God. Verses 7 through 10. Let's look at it. And I hope you have your Bibles open to that 24th Psalm. First of all, the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. He hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. We see here the sovereignty of God in creation. Not creating some things, but creating all things. It all belongs to the Lord. Not just the earth and the world, but the whole created Universal system. As one passage says, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, to which a preacher said, yes, then he also owns the thousand hills that those cattle graze on. He owns every hill and mountain. We're talking about the sovereignty of God, dear friends. He owns every hill and mountain, every valley, every cave. He owns all the fertile land and the deserts. And he owns all the oceans and all the heavens. He owns it because he made it. His ownership goes much higher than our understanding. The Lord owns more 
so much more than just the earth and the world that we know it. He owns all the stellar empires of space. He owns all the stars, all the galaxies, including everything in the universal system that we know anything about and things that we do not know anything about. The Milky Way is only one of more than 100 million galaxies. It contains 100 billion stars spinning around a center in the form of a giant disk of stars. It extends 100,000 light years from rim to rim, covering 600 million billion miles of stars. And he knows the name of every one of those stars. Oh, my Lord, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Some 30,000 light years from the center of the Milky Way is a moderate star. We call it the sun. The sun also has a family of baby planets. The sun and its family make their orbit around the center of the Milky Way once every 200 million years. The earth is the Lord's. Don't you ever forget that. It does not belong to the Democrats and to the Republicans or to any political party and stupid man as stupid as he could possibly get. I've often thought some people as dumb as they'll ever be. That's not so. They're getting dumber every day. The earth is the Lord's. Why earth? Why earth? Why not Mars and Jupiter and Saturn and so forth? Because our planet was invaded by sin. And God has not forgotten about His earth and His world. It still belongs to Him. And He's not through with it. And I'm not so sure. But this could be one of the reasons why God is putting our world through such chaos and turmoil today, even the United States of America. We've forgotten who the boss is. We've forgotten who gives the orders. We've forgotten the sovereignty of God. One day our Lord will come back, and when He comes back, This earth is going to be purged and cleansed. Purged and cleansed. It will be beautified. And the Bible says the desert shall blossom like a rose. Now, let me just say a word about cell phones, all right? With all probability, it's one of your worst enemies. Huh? They never shut up, do they? Huh? You notice that? And you don't even believe in the devil? Sure you do. 
What I'm saying is this, my dear friend, and it's happened so many, many times in my ministry. I was preaching in Bullard, Texas, many years ago. And it's been many years ago because they won't have me back. And as I was preaching, we were having a brush arbor meeting on the outside. But on this particular night, instead of having the brush arbor meeting, we had it. That was the First Baptist Church of Bullard. Is there anything you can do to shut that thing on? If you can, I'd appreciate it so much. All right. And as I was reading from the Word of God, a big fly. We call them horse flies. I've often wondered why you call them horse flies. Well, they're big as a horse. Big old fly. That fly landed on my Bible as I was reading a verse of Scripture. And he landed on the very verse I was reading. And he was so big, I couldn't complete the reading of it. And I thought, I'll just skip over two words. When I did, the fly went in the same direction I was reading. I couldn't get away from it. You say, well, what do you think it was? I believe it was a devil. He is Beelzebub. He is the prince of flies. And anything he can do to get you to lose interest in the word of God, he will do it. Don't know where I am. I'll find him at least after a while. Talking about the sovereignty of God, ladies and gentlemen. Now, number two, the holiness of God. Look at verses 3 through 5 again. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. It comes on the tail end of a very important question and a very important answer. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who's going to stand in his holy place? Who's going to do that? And the answer is, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul under vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Now, I don't want to appear to be judgmental, but that kind of weeds most of us out. Don't you think so? He that hath clean hands. And if not lifted up his soul under vanity. Who's going to get there? The holiness of God. Heaven is a very special place. And God will never let it be polluted. There was one Lucifer, an archangel of God, who sought to pollute heaven. And when he did, God kicked the devil out. And thousands of angels are they would become demons that followed him. God will not let heaven be polluted. Nor will God let anyone into heaven who would pollute it. That's why in Revelation 21, 27, it talks about only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It talks about those who've been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, however, he gives us his righteousness in verse number 5. He, that is the person who wants to go to heaven, shall receive the blessing from the Lord, the righteousness from the God of his salvation. He gives righteousness to his people. 
And the righteousness that he gives to his people qualifies them to go and enter into heaven. And when the gates are open for the Son, they open for those who are with him. When he goes in, we go in. The third thing is the authority of God. Christ has the authority to enter because of who he is and what he has done. He said on a number of occasions on this earth when he was doing his ministry down here, I did not come to do my will, I've come to do the will of him that sent me. And he did obey the will of the Father. Who sent him. Christ has the authority to enter into heaven because of who he is and what he's done. Now, there are two appearances of Christ as king of glory standing before the heavenly Jerusalem. I want you to see this. I want you to pay attention to it. There are two appearances of Christ as the king of glory standing before the heavenly Jerusalem. In verses 7 and 8 is one of those. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be you lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is the king of glory and he's described as the Lord mighty in battle. What battle is he talking about? He's talking about the battle that the Lord Jesus Christ had on this earth when he came the first time and declared himself to be the Messiah, the Savior that God would send to the world and the Pharisees crucified him and saw he was nailed to the cross. After he died on the cross, after he arose from the grave, at his ascension, he stands to enter the glory world. He's leaving planet earth. The disciples are watching him as he goes away. And as he approaches heaven, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up. The king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? Not the Antichrist, not the false prophet, but the Lord of glory. He's the King of glory. And the heavens open for Him, for Him. And not only for Him, but for those with Him. The battle that He has fought. What about His temptations? We do not have the time to go into detail of this. But the temptings of Christ by the devil. Forty days and forty nights, Matthew records it. His torture on the cross. We make a mistake in thinking that the devil wanted him on the cross. No, the devil didn't want him on the cross. And tried his best to talk him out of it in the Garden of Gethsemane. And even while Christ was hanging on the cross, if he be the Christ of God, let him come down from the cross. Had he come down, he wouldn't be the Christ of God. It was an argument. It was a temptation And he won that, his torture on the cross. 
but especially his separation from the Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And his death, and his burial, and his resurrection. Now would you give me a a moment here about the Lord being mighty in battle? He transfers paradise to heaven. Well, what do you mean he transfers paradise to heaven? You remember when Christ hung on the cross, the thief said, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the Lord Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me, not in heaven, but thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now, if you are the least bit interested, keep a marker where you are. Go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. The book of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. And here it is talking about the death of Christ and his resurrection. And what happened in between his death and his resurrection. He was in the grave three days and three nights. What happened during that three-day and three-night period? Well, you said he died. Well, what happened to his soul? Christ Jesus was the God-man. He was a man with a soul. He was a man with a spirit. And just as when a Christian dies today, my dear friend, or even when an unsaved man dies today, that's not the end of everything. It's only the beginning of another type of life that his soul is going to stand in the presence of God. Please keep that in mind. Now then in verse number 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. Who are the captives here? And he gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Now, I had a fellow to tell me, he said, that's very simple. He was six feet in the grave. I beg to differ with you. He wasn't six feet under anything. He was buried in the side of a mountain, not six feet under dirt. But he went into the heart of the earth, and that's where paradise is or was. And paradise was the place where people who died in the Old Testament and knew the Lord, that's where their soul went, not into heaven. Heaven could only be opened by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Christ at that point in time had not resurrected. His body was still dead in the tomb, but his soul went to paradise. But when he got to paradise, you know what he did? He liberated all the Old Testament saints. What a host of people that must have been. And he led them out of paradise And as Jesus Christ ascended, you say, well, why could they see Christ and not see these others? Because Jesus Christ had a glorified body. He led these spirit saints into the heaven of heavens, and that's where heaven is today. It's not the paradise in the Old Testament. 
And when you die as a believer, as Paul said to be absent from the flesh, is to be present with the Lord. That's a New Testament term, ladies and gentlemen. Had you been in the Old Testament, where do you think Abraham's bosom is? You remember the devil even had a part in this, but I'll not get into that. I'll just simply say this business about the rich man dying and in hell He lift up his eyes and he saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. Where did the rich man go? Well, he didn't go to paradise. But there's another place where unsaved people in the Old Testament went called Sheol. And the Greek word for it is Hades. If they were unsaved, they went into Sheol, Hades. If they were saved, they went into paradise. And you could see from one side to the other. The unsaved rich man said, I see Lazarus. I see Christ. I see, I see, I see. But they were separated. And you remember in that passage of Scripture, it's so very interesting. Somebody said, well, why couldn't he just send a message for Lazarus to come down to the torture of Sheol and give them some relief. And Christ said, those that are in paradise can't cross over. And those that are in hell can't cross over. You can't get there from here. I'm saying that he transferred paradise to heaven. And when we as believers to die in the New Testament, since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we don't go to paradise. It's empty. It's all been transferred up to heaven. You go to be with the Lord. Because of what? The resurrection of the Lord. And he is mighty in battle. So he knocks on the door or has his Angels knock on the door. Some question is raised. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, your everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come. How is he going to get in? Who is the King of glory? The Lord is the King of glory. With the Old Testament saints. I said that there are two appearances of Christ as the King of glory. Verse 7 and 8 is one of those. The other one is found in verses 9 and 10 of that 24th chapter. Again, it's repeated, but it is a second time. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, your everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. When do you believe, Brother Cozart, that that will take place? I believe it will come at the time of the rapture of the saints. Christ is coming again. And I'm not speaking about his overall second coming and all the events start, uh, beginning with that because in that his feet shall touch the Mount of Olives. But Paul said, no, in speaking of the rapture, the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout. And he stops in heaven. He stops in the skies And he brings all the believers, living and dead, they're caught up to be with the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Got to go back into heaven. 
Lift up your heads, O ye gates. How we're going to get in? The king of glory. And the gates are opened. That has not happened. But ladies and gentlemen, sure as I am here and wear a nose, it's going to take place. And when it happens, all of our dead loved ones and millions of believers we never had the privilege of meeting, but they were New Testament believers are going to be called up to be with the Lord. And those of us who remain, if there are any of us in this audience, I don't know when he's coming again. I'm not a, a date setter, but he's coming. The living believers shall be caught up with them in the clouds of glory, and shall we shall always be with him. Two different openings there. The Lord of hosts. And when the gates open for him, they open for us. Let me conclude with an illustration that's been moving in my own heart in life. And I like to refer to it many times because of the beauty of it. Donald Gray Barnhouse is a writer of days gone by. He no longer lives Donald Gray Barnhouse surrendered to preach, and when they called him to his church to become pastor, he started praying, Lord, what would you have me preach? And the Lord led him to the book of Romans. And you know what he preached on the first Sunday? The book of Romans. You know what he preached on the second Sunday? The book of Romans. His entire ministry was devoted to the book of Romans until the day he died. He has a four-volume commentary that deals with this very important question. By what right and authority do you have to enter into God's heaven? By what right and authority do you have a right to enter into God's heaven? On one occasion, Mr. Barnhouse was speaking with a United States Marine and presented to that Marine this proposition. He said to that Marine, if you died today and stood before heaven's gates to enter and was asked by what right and authority do you have to enter into God's heaven, what would your answer be? What are you going to say? The the Marine replied, I'd have to say, look at my record. Many records would read like this. I have a right to enter into heaven because of my certificate of decision for Christ. I have a right to enter into heaven because I was baptized into the church. I have a right to enter into heaven because of my perfect attendance pen and my study course awards. And on top of that, I was a tither. I have a right to enter into heaven because I was a Sunday school teacher and a deacon. I have a right to enter into heaven because I had good habits. And on top of all that, I have a right to enter into heaven because I was a member of the Masonic Lodge. What would the response be, do you think, to such a statement? 
Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do this? Did we not do that? Did we not do the other? And he will say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Mr. Barnhouse, on another occasion, spoke with a person on a cruise. He was going across the Atlantic, got into a conversation with this individual, and he said to him, Sir, if this ship sunk and everybody were drowned and you stood before heaven wanting to enter and you were asked, By what right and authority do you have to enter God's heaven? What would your answer be? The person responded, I don't guess I'd have anything to say. To which Barnhouse reminded him that he was quoting Romans 3.19, which says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. One of the most difficult things for an individual to say, for one human being to say, is I am guilty. We spend our time trying to defend ourselves before others. And we commit all kinds of rotten, ungodly, filthy sins and try to justify it as something beautiful and nice and lovely. God have mercy on us. Have you ever thought about saying that? I am guilty. It'd change your whole attitude. Change your whole life. If you broke the law and were brought in to appear before the judge who fined you $2,000 and you couldn't pay it, you'd face jail time. However, if somebody stepped up and paid it for you, you could then turn and walk out of the courthouse. And if you were stopped by an officer of the law and he asked, by what right and authority do you have to leave this courtroom? What would your answer be? Well, Barnhouse said, you wouldn't say, well, look at my record. You would not refuse to say anything, but you could say this, my fine has been paid. And let me tell you something, if your fine has been paid, you never have to pay it. It's been paid. Christ died for sinners. This is our authority, dear church. This is our authority and the right we have to enter into heaven that our debt has been paid. We've been accepted in the beloved. And when the king of glory enters into heaven, we'll enter with him dressed in his righteousness alone. Let's stand for prayer, please. Father in heaven,